Well, Tom, thank you so much for joining me. This is Unassimilated Sounds. Derek Pyle, my guest today is Tom Constantine of formerly of the Grateful Dead and of many more exciting uh, musical projects in the, in the in the last number of decades that I that I'm looking forward to getting to talk to you about today. That pretty well sums it up, yeah. <laughs> so let's let's talk about some of your early experiences um to start maybe. I know that you know it's well in the history books of of your going to UC Berkeley and uh meeting Phil Lesh and becoming a part of the dead but you, but you had um as a as a teenager you had you were showing quite a lot of promise in in a classical career well actually uh, i met phil in august of 1961 previous may i had appeared with the las vegas pops orchestra performing a composition of my own for solo piano and orchestra other times i had done other pieces for orchestra chamber music i'd given a couple of piano recitals and so, yes, my momentum was already uh, in full stampede by then. And and what were was I know you were certainly interested in avant-garde classical. Were you also performing more traditional classical, or what, what were these performances? Oh yes, in fact, my teacher and I uh, did a Mozart concerto with him playing the piano for the other orchestra. Oh wow! Uh, I was very much brought up in that line of music: uh, Bach, Beethoven all of the classics, Brahms, and even uh, composers whose names begin with something else than B. <laughs> and uh, I, I was very much into that, although I, I'd like to think that uh, if I'd had the study habits I've had now, back then, I really could have done something, hmm. because I've learned so much not only about the music, but how to learn the music in the meantime. Hmm. What... Wh- can you articulate at all some of what you've learned about how to learn the music? Oh, absolutely. Mainly it has to do with being thoroughgoing and attending to details. Uh, there's an old saying I once heard in the form of a question. They say, how come there's never time to do it right, but there's always time to do it over? <laughs> and so I figured, well, hey, let me take the time, chase down all those alleys, and uh, get to the uh, the fruit that I'm looking for, or <laughs> pick your own metaphor, and it turned out that that actually is the fastest way to get where you're going. A lot of beginning students have these avoidance strategies where something seems too difficult for them, so they just shine it on. Mm-hmm. And I got over that reflex, and I think that was a major victory. Yeah, wow. And so then you you had an interest in astrology early on as well, too. Well, astronomy, if you mean that. Astronomy, astronomy. Yes, actually, the astronomers back then and since are, are very much down on astrology. For uh, I think they protest even a bit too much, too much. Maybe they take it more seriously than it deserves. But uh, yes, I had a, a, an astronomical telescope. I made observations and drawings of uh, the moon, the planets. For a while, I was reporting to the Association of Variable Star Observers and the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. Had a couple of observations published, even. Oh wow! And th- th- I was, this is this is as a teenager, or a young man, or where is yes, this? I was fifteen, sixteen years old, oh. Oh. and submitting these observations, and they were printing them. The, I, I looked upon their their array of drawings, and I was about the middle of the pack. And I was about in the middle of the pack. I wasn't the best of them. I wasn't the worst of them. I was somewhere in the middle, <laughs> except of course. 
when I went to UC Berkeley to study science, I quickly fell into the musical realm, and it kind of abstractulated with me. <laughs> and that's where you began. So you aud- you audited or took a took a course with Barrio at Mills. Oh yes. So I had been into uh, the avant-garde music, as you mentioned, uh, Schockhausen, Boulez, also Luciano Barrio, even before I met Phil. And it was one of the cornerstones of our getting along, because we shared an interest in that very strongly. Mm-hmm. And when it turned out that Barrio would be teaching a course at Mills College, our eyes lit up and we signed up right away. And and what was the course material, or what what was it? If there was a typical course, what did it look like in those classes? I wound up taking courses with Barry over the next several years in England and Italy also. Also, there's a Darmstadt in 1963. And his typical approach, was most of the avant-garde composers back then, was to basically outline the ideas of the current pieces he was working on. Uh, every piece by Stockhausen, for instance, involved almost a uh, starting from brand new redefinition of musical terms. Mm-hmm. And this piece was like a demonstration of that. Uh, a piece uh, for woodwinds called Zeitmasa measured time in ways that hadn't been done before. For instance, I don't want to get too technical too fast, but pitch relationships are numerical. An octave is a two-to-one relation. A440 is an octave above A220. They're, they're all multiples of two. Sure. Well... Uh, so is rhythm, and, and uh, Stockhausen used the organization of pitch to organize his rhythms. Like a, a perfect fifth would be a th- three to two proportion. Hmm. And at every interval, musically speaking, is a rhythmic proportion as well. If you slow down the, the pitch enough so that you hear the individual beats, it's, it's a continuum. Oh, and sure, sure. And because he, the, he, he demonstrated that. He has a, a square wave sound which slowed down until you hear the rhythm, or until you could hear the rhythm. And then he would change the rhythm and start speeding it up again, and you'd hear how it changed the sound. Hmm. And you, and you, you, say, you mentioned this from Stockhausen. You were studying with him as well in, in Paris, is that correct? In Darmstadt, Germany. Okay. Every summer back in those years, there was an, a festival and... A, School of uh, avant-garde music in Darmstadt. I think its high point might have been 1961, although I got there in 62 and 63, and it was still very much alive. Uh, Stockhausen was a fixture there. Uh, Pierre Boulez showed up. Uh, Henri Pousseur, the Belgian composer, who turned out to be another mentor of mine. I went to his uh, electronic music studio in Brussels for several months in 62. Well, also there, Georgi Ligeti was there. Uh, anybody who was anybody in avant-garde music showed up. John Cage even showed up in 1961, and he sort of uh, uh, threw a wrench into things in a most interesting way. <laughs> Say more. How, what, what was the wrench he threw? Well, uh, John Cage was an advocate of a, a, an attitude of a great degree of freedom in interpretation. And uh, the uh, European avant-gardists were getting ever more objective and precise in their definition of what the what the music would be. And in fact, it got so complicated, rhythms are so complicated that you can't hear a beat. Hmm. Now, in Cage, you can't hear a beat either, but that's because he doesn't want one there. <laughs> 
Boulez has one, but he clouds it up with this incredible complex structure of, of rhythmic devices. So I think in the end, uh, the uh, the Europeans came around to uh, John Cage's way of thinking. I noticed that uh, Stockhausen's first set of piano pieces was very objectified and very precise. And the second set, he loosened up quite a bit. And I think that was the John Cage influence. It's almost like the two polarities balance each other out in some ways. Or I, or I don't know, maybe Cage did, did Cage take anything from the Europeans while he was there, you think? Oh, yes. Well, Cage had been a student of Arnold Schoenberg. And so he was grounded in the same tradition that the European avant-gardists were. In fact, even more so than some of them. I know Theodore Adorno studied with Alban Berg, so there was a continuity to the previous generation. Let's hear some of this early music of yours from the 60s. This is going to be Electronic Study Number 3, recorded in 1962 at Studio Aplec in Belgium. And then we'll have a piece from Berio, Luciano Berio, Omaggio a Joyce. This is Unassimilated Sounds. I'm Derek Pyle, and my guest today is Tom Constantin. Thank you. 
Other plash and sights. 
word And, and as far as your own relationships, you mentioned, I can't remember who you said, but, but, but someone being a mentor, who, who did you become close with and what did some of those relationships look like? Mostly Luciano Berrio and Henri Pousseau. Okay. Uh, Stockhausen and Boulez were kind of distant demigods. Uh, they were the, uh, the, the 
captain and the uh, science officer, uh, officer at the helm, kind of like mm-hmm. Kirk and Spock. <laughs> right. Ship. And uh, the others, they well, uh, they were, it was it was quite an interesting zoo, actually. Uh, every one of them was quite individualistic. Uh, for as much as some people said that it all sounds the same, I can very much tell the difference between Boulez and Stockhausen and Dario. But uh, for a variety of reasons, possibly because I met him first, I was probably closest to Berio. I spent the most time with him. I was his student in Italy for most of the end of 1962 and more than half of 1963. And for a brief spell, uh, as I've mentioned, Henri Pousseur in Brussels, Belgium, was creating a very interesting style of electronic music. And he would invoke geometric models for his musical Hmm. forms, like mobiles. For instance, okay. a score that you would uh, flex the pages and it would come out differently another time. Mm. Uh, two different performances could be very, very, very different, kind of like Grateful Dead performances. Sure, sure. Like So it's an illustrated score using a geometric shape as the score. Yes. Uh, he would give you the map and then you'd be free to travel around on it as you wished. And then how does so at some point you you come back and and hook up with Phil again and with with the Grateful Dead and how does all of this are you directly thinking about the the theoretical aspects of this the musical aspects of this and bringing it to the Grateful Dead or is or is that a whole other beast unto itself or I believe that everyone in any walk of life or endeavor has a synergistic desire to bring to bear all of their education everything that they've learned, everything they've picked up. Uh, nobody likes to have to shoehorn what you've learned into some tiny symbol mm-hmm. of, of a format. Uh, I know Gary Duncan uh, from Quicksilver Messenger Service, he and I had this talk. If he had his druthers, he'd be playing John Coltrane. <laughs> and Horace Stolten. But, uh, you know, he, the Quicksilver material beckons and it, it pays the bills for him. And uh, likewise with The Grateful Dead, uh, Phil and I had seen this marvelous and interesting world, and we couldn't forget it. We couldn't unknow it, and so it had to show up somehow. Hmm. And well, you know, one of the questions I had, one of the, if you're comfortable talking about this, one of the um, the things that's written in the, in the, in these history books is is your relationship with the band. You you had. You and Phil maybe had been had been taking acid in the early in sixty one or sixty two, but by the time you came back to the Grateful Dead, you weren't you were no longer partaking in that. And and are you comfortable talking about some of those early experiences and and what they were like and then what led to yeah? Absolutely, Phil took our first trip off off the same batch of sugar cubes. (laughs) And before that, we got Morning Glory seeds, which were interesting, except they made you nauseous. Right. Right. And also, the, a friend of a friend came back from Texas with a truckload full of peyote, which somehow was still legal, and now was circulating. Uh, this was already when I was still living in Las, in Las Vegas. Mm. And we would go out into the desert and uh, commune with nature and the stars and get away from it all. And uh, towards the end, when you're coming back, you're not exactly sure what planet you're on, even, <laughs> which I, I found to be a refreshing uh, diversion of a feeling. Mm. Do, do any of the particular experiences stand out of as being Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Numerous ones. Uh, indoors and outdoors. 
uh, indoors, I remember a time uh, when I was tripping around the house, and I thought I'd get to the piano. I ran through a Beethoven sonata. And he wrote it in the 1790s when he was a kid, just arrived in Vienna. And all of these images of 1790s Austria started coming out. I could see the horses drawing the wagons, the, the marble buildings, everything. I could almost taste the pastries. Wow. It's as if the music was a combination lock or a combination that unlocked the lock. <laughs> and I figured all of it is included somehow. And if you could just find it, and of course the Grateful Dead found a lock. As far as outdoor experiences go, there, there are some favorite places in the desert we would go. And uh, I would look up at the stars, and having been in astronomy, I knew all the constellations. And they would come to life. For me, uh, there was one scene, and this got kind of mystical, and I, I feel sort of strange discussing it, but it, it happened. I was uh, sitting there in the desert, and I, I was picking up as if playing recordings of life forms, and I found a recording, so to say, of a rabbit cavorting around as it was, and I could see the end of the reel coming, hmm. and it was poor animal's demise, and it was done in by a hunter when I went to a river to drink. And my eyes opened, and there was Repus the hare, the constellation, Eridanus the river, and Orion the hunter. And wow. sort of dissolved on them. And wow. that sense of connectivity, uh, you know, of the archetypes uh, that we are surrounded by all the time, the synchronicity of it all, uh, got my attention. Hmm. And were you, at this point, certainly this fits in with, with the Grateful Dead camp, did this fit in with your avant-garde community, the circles you were passing through there, or or, or is taking these psychedelic experiences, make you an, did it make you an outsider in some ways from from that community, or, or maybe it wasn't so clear-cut either way? Oh, definitely not. Uh, not only did I run into Phil Lesh in California, I also met Terry Riley and Steve Reich. In fact, Steve Reich was in the class with Luciano Berrio. And I didn't see any such wall or boundary or division. I mean, we were all on the same page uh, exploring really, really interesting stuff. And uh, we were curious to see how it would turn out. So little did we know. <laughs> well, yeah, little, little did you know. Did, did you sense that the Grateful Dead, that you, that you were a part of something that was going to become uh, as big as it's as, as big as it has become or did become? The whole 1960s scene was something really miraculous. We knew it at the time. Mm. Even though we couldn't flesh out the details as to how it would develop, we knew that it was special. We knew it was very special. And at the time, I, don't, I didn't think of it as being limited to the Grateful Dead. It was the entire scene. Mm. Jefferson Airplane, the Charlatans, for sure. Uh, a lot of the other bands, Quicksilver, Big Brother, it's a beautiful day. It was like a big extended family. In fact, the last 10 years or so when I've been touring with Jefferson Starship, it seemed like a perpetual homecoming. I'm going back to scenes and places where I'd been before. Even places I hadn't been before, it seems like I'd been there before. Mm. And it was one big extended cosmic galactic experience that included the Grateful Dead for sure. Well, let's hear some more music. Here's a cut, Alaric's Premonition. This is recorded by you in 1990, but released 
on your 2002 album, 88 Keys to Tomorrow. And then we'll have Elephant Revival, band out of Colorado, doing Sing to the Mountain, followed by Tim Balada, Beja Flor, and finally Casey Chambers, We're All Gonna Die Someday. This is Unassimilated Sounds. My guest today is Tom Constantin. Go and sing to the 
tic-tac do meu coração Renascerá no tic-tac do meu coração Renascerá de malada é semente de um novo dia Nordeste sofrimento, povo lutador Entre mares e montanhas com você eu vou Eu quero te namorar Amor Eu quero te namorar Amor Meu lábio é tão doce, doce feito mel Toda azul sua beleza feita cor do céu Quero me aquecer, sentir o seu calor Rola blá na cama, lhe chamar de amor Fazer minhas poesias pra te conquistar Deixar ela simplesmente coberta de flor Quero me aquecer, sentir o seu calor Amor, é só me chamar Que eu vou Amor, é só me chamar Que eu vou Estou sentindo a falta de você Sonhando com seu beijo, espero amanhecer Tu levas as palavras, solta pelo ar Eu quero te namorar Amor
And yeah, you mentioned playing with with Starship lately, and I know you were part of this uh, 2009 Woodstock tour that happened. In the music and and maybe amongst the amongst the musicians, what what's still there, um, and and what's changed? What's diff- What was different about this uh, reuniting with these musicians more recently? Well, you know, life is full of paradoxes. It was different, yes, but in some ways it was the same. Uh, this is like an extended family. Uh, I see Country Joe McDonald, and I, I, I say hi to Hattie Art, and uh, we start catching up, and it's like, wait, it's, it's, it was yesterday the last time I saw him. It's, hmm. it's a very close uh, connection. Uh, I noticed uh, somebody asked me about Vince Wilnick once, and uh, one of the things I enjoyed about the relationship with him is that there's so many things we didn't have to explain to each other. We shared the experience. We knew what it was like. We didn't have any of the misimpressions that so easily can come upon you if you're judging from a distance when you're looking from the balcony because we'd been in the thick of the hurricane. And uh, we were on the same page already. We could just smile and not say anything to each other. In fact, last, last time I saw Buddy Cage, I mean, he and I had this smile fest that we almost always get into. And uh, our smiles were so broad and so wide, it was about three or four minutes before I could regain control of my mouth so I could say something. <laughs> it's just a, a very elevated spirit uh, that we all share. Hmm. And you, you mentioned Vince. How I know you you were playing with that with the final tour that Vince did. How how did you two link up originally? I ran into him backstage at Grateful Dead shows. And uh, we always had kind words for one another. And uh, we interacted uh, several times since. Uh, Psychedelic Keyboard Trio with Bob Brela, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, Second Sight, which was Bob Brela's other band. And uh, it was always comfortable. It was always friendly. Hmm. Definitely a... a, a- Spirit that's missed, and 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 especially his work with the Tubes, which I just love, which I which sometimes the Deadhead community I think passes over, but but a man who made a lot of great music for a lot of years. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. So you were still back. You you were going. You were sorry. You were going to Dead shows still throughout the '90s and and backstage and connected with the band. Yes, pretty much. Okay. Um, wasn't it? Every show, I'm, it amuses me that there are people who have been to more Grateful Dead shows than I have. Right, <laughs> right. But maybe you've uh, played more more Dead music than a lot of people have seen. <laughs> well, uh, there are only uh, a handful of Grateful Dead shows that I was at when I, that I wasn't playing. Yes. Hmm. What What was your impression of of seeing the Dead in the later years, uh, having been there in the beginning years? Well, it was a juggernaut that just took on a life of its own and it swept everything along with it. I think every, even Jerry Garcia was surprised and amazed as uh, to how things were starting to develop. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just grew and grew and grew and uh, nobody could predict it. It was just new wonders coming from the corner actually every day. Mm-hmm. And speaking of new corners of dead music, you're getting ready to go back on the road with Jazz is Dead in, in next month. Oh, that's right, and I'm really, really looking forward to that. This is a, a 
top-flight lineup of musicians. I'm honored and flattered that they invited me to join in, and I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be our interpretations of the same material, which, as you might guess, after 40 years, I'm ready to look at it in a new way. Yeah, yeah. And uh, with people who are about pretty much the same attitude as I. So we should engage and connect in some way that uh, ought to be lightning in a bottle. <laughs> Have you... I know um, Jeff Pivar and, and others were in, I think, England working on a, a new Jazz is Dead album. Have you been playing with them the last couple of months to get ready for these shows, or what does the lead-up to these shows look like on your end? I know that uh, Jeff was working with Bet Midler before, and uh, all of these are highly qualified musicians, and their schedule is pretty full. It was a, a work of uh, art to uh, negotiate the openings in the calendar to get us all together. I can imagine, yeah. And uh, I, I'd run into Jeff before. He uh, he was a spot uh, guitarist showing up to elevate the uh, landscape of uh, Jefferson Starship for a couple of shows. I remember a couple of years ago in Victoria, British Columbia. I, yeah, I remember that. Jeff is an old... I used to babysit Jeff's partner's kid. Um, so Jeff wasn't always around because he'd be, he'd be on the road, but I've, I've known him and, and Inger at his partner i think they're engaged now but but for a long time right witty person great player yeah yeah so one one question you know we're talking about the the grateful dead um and new manifestations do you have any comments related to any of the soldier field shows or the 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 dead's legacy at 50 or anything like that you know i really should think of something people have been asking me (laughs) Or, you know, what I would, what I have been saying is, if uh, if if they don't invite me themselves, I'm not going to crash the party. I mean, they they earned their way there. I've heard nothing but great things about Jeff Cimenti, and he's had a couple of decades to get used to them. Yeah. I mean, my crash with the band was barely two years, hmm. and I, I was barely getting my feet on the ground even. So uh, they have this incredible momentum of working together and a. a a rapprochement, or pick another French word, <laughs> that connects them and makes it so easy for them to be musically mobile and go all over the place. And this, they've been developing this, developing this for the last 30 years, and also playing in front of the big crowds, mm. which has got to make a difference. I know in the uh, Heroes of Woodstock tour, we had a couple of 20,000 crowds, and you can feel the electricity. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. And and beyond the dead and Starship, what music what music that you're making or a part of these days is is exciting to you? Well, I mentioned Bob Brailoff. We have a duo called Dos Hermanos, mm-hmm. and that's O S E. Dose is a measurement of medication. It's not a number. <laughs> right, right. And uh, basically, we started out tripping and just totally improvising, and we found out that there was a, a galaxy of connections out there that we could play off of. In fact, we have a residency in November at a university festival in Sacramento, California. I've also been doing solo recitals, which I have a lot of fun doing. Uh, thanks to the Starship giving me a solo set segment, I've developed that part of my act. And uh, feel sometimes I'm not just playing the notes, I'm playing the audience. I'm interacting with the people, which I really enjoy. Mm-hmm. Well, last year or so, I've been working with a string quartet 
uh, I make arrangements of uh, rock pieces for string quartet. I do the vocals. We've done tunes like Eleanor Rigby, As Tears Go By. A um, couple of other ones from that period, which are uh, a whole lot of fun to do, and rather a, a different approach to the music, which I, I find refreshing, and it seems the people who listen to it do, too. Hmm. Hmm. And you mentioned now with Bob, you said you said tripping and playing music. So at some point, because at some point you became involved with Scientology and, and there was no psychedelic partaking, and now you've come back around? or Yes, that, that's a quick way of summing it. Uh, in the late 60s, uh, it appealed to me because it seemed to uh, uh, speak to the, the spiritual spaces that I was uh, aiming for, and it uh, purported to be a way that would help me get there. Hmm. And uh, I, I learned other things on the way, and I'm happy with where I am now. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Now, one question I have, are there any unexpected influences on your work that uh, that folks may not be aware of or, or might not come immediately? It's funny you should ask. You know, a lot of people are asked, you know, what's in your record shelf? You know, what are your collection? What do you listen to? What are you into? And the, the impulse is to come up with a really off-the-wall answer, like something <laughs> like, you know, uh, drumming music from uh, Zimbabwe, for instance, uh, uh, which would be kind of funny, except in my case it's true. Right. Uh, and Bira. Uh, music of various cultures, music of different times, uh, European music gone back to the 11th century. Uh, there are numerous uh, morsels of delight to be found. Mm-hmm. Uh, my favorite composer, actually, in that era is uh, Claudio Monteverdi, who was active in the 1600s and early 1600s. Sure. And this sense of melody and giving everybody something interesting to do was quite revolutionary. Mm-hmm. And also his harmony. Uh, he would come up with some out there chords that uh, I think nobody heard again until Richard Wagner came along. Mm. And uh, like I say, there are morsels like this to be found. Uh, the last 10 years or so, I've been binge practicing. At one point, I had all 27 Chopin etudes in my rotation. And uh, you, you learn a lot that way. It's like exploring a 19th century novel that you reshuffle and deal every time, and it's totally new. Sure. What 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 comes? What are with talking with Chopin? What what are some of the things that emerged to you, or some of the things that that became clearer, or that you were interested by? Well, it's difficult to, to describe other than pure musical terms. In fact, uh, uh, if if it weren't, I'm sure I would have been able to grasp it a lot sooner. You, know, you have to grasp it from inside your hand as it is on the keyboard. Mm. But basically, uh, Chopin, like, uh, his mentor Clementi was a master tactician of solving the problem of how do you get your hand there to play the note? Uh, how, do you, how do you position yourself for greatest advantage? It's a little bit like pool. You want to sink the object ball, but you, you want the cue ball to wind up where you get a good shot at the next one. And hmm. so the, stra- the strategy and the tax- tactics of hand placement, uh, the connection with uh, the harmony, um, you figure when you're learning to play music, you have four horses you want to control. You have eye, ear, mind, and hand. Each of them understands the music in its own way. And Chopin was well aware of that. 
and you'd be looking over the hedge. The, the, the hand would be looking over the edge of the mind, what it means harmonically. And when you get them all going, they, they reinforce one another, and they help build towards something. The problem is, is that they're four different languages. Each understands the music in its own terms. Uh, the music theorist looks at it a certain way. The, the technician playing the piece, whether it's on a piano, a guitar, drums, whatever, that's a physical understanding of the neuromuscular choreography that gets you through it. And that's totally different. And the eye looks at the music, and that looks like something different again. And the ear sits in judgment and says, oh, that kind of sucks. Let's do it a different way. So uh, they're all at their place at the table. The Chopin was a big help in getting them to be uh, at peace with one another. Hmm. Hmm. You know, when you describe this, you sound a lot like a music teacher. And I know you've done, you've taught at various points throughout your career. Are you teaching these days currently? I haven't been teaching for at least 10 years or so. The difficulty is that I'm on tour so often. I'm out of mm-hmm. town a lot. And uh, parents like their piano teacher there every week for their students. And I understand <laughs> that. Right. Well, let's hear you playing some Chopin. This is a Nocturne, Opus 9, number 2, that you recorded in 1994, playing on a Bosendorfer Imperial Grand Piano. And then we'll hear King of Nowhere, a project of Jesse French with a host of Northampton, Western Mass, musicians. Becca Malin also on vocals, Aaron Noble on the drums, Parker McQueenie on the keyboard, Lucy Hollier on viola, and Abigail Hobart on violin. And then after that, we'll hear from Lucinda Williams with her tune Righteously. This is Unassimilated Sounds. I'm Derek Pyle. My guest today is Tom Constantine.
Or maybe we'll say when when you're improvising, how much are you thinking consciously, reflectively about the theory underneath what you're doing, and how how much of it is just you know coming from a more visceral place? Uh, one of my favorite yogis, Bera, put it this way: He said, "I can't think and hit at the same time." And I find that if I think too much while I'm playing, it just messes me up. Hmm. All the thinking, all of the planning, all the practicing, that is in preparation. That's gone before. 
Mm. It's got me to the place where I can respond reflexively in real time. Because truth to tell, you haven't got a lot of time to respond. You haven't got enough time to think about it. If you do have enough time to think about it, uh, more than likely, it's going to get you into trouble. Mm. So I, I respond quickly and immediately, uh, usually correctly. I've been lucky that way. But uh, I, I've seen those points where blood and thunder turned to thud and blunder. And there's always the risk of that. Mm. So the so the theory as well as the practice is building up your reflexes, and then you get there on the stage, and it's it's your reflexes or the muse or uh, whatever it may be, but you just have to go with it there. Well, if I may serve up another Yogi Berra quote, he said, uh, "In theory, there's no difference between theory and practice. In practice, there is." Hmm. Now you mentioning you said he's your favorite yogi. Do you, do you have an interest in uh, Eastern philosophy, spirituality? Oh, very definitely. I, I was a regular attendee at the Zen Center in San Francisco in the early 1960s, and uh, was uh, was among many who was mentored by Shunryu Suzuki. Hmm. Uh, in the mid 60s, uh, I went to, in Los Angeles with several members of the Grateful Dead to meet the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Who gave us a uh, a, a rose mantra? Huh. And he didn't like the Moon's band at all. He didn't like Grateful Dead. Said, no, you should call it Everlasting Life. <laughs> and it was an interesting uh, party at the place on Harvard Drive in Los Angeles. Donovan was there. Some folks from the airplane were there. I remember seeing Jack Cassidy. Hmm. So yeah, it, it, the whole psychedelic uh, experience is a very a uh, very spiritual underpinning that uh, the Eastern traditions speak to very directly. Hmm. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting part of of the dead, which seems actively talked about maybe in, in the beginning parts of their career, but then but then fades, at least as far as I know the band is no longer talking about this as the years go by, but certainly the fans are, are talking a great, or maybe Nikki is talking about it, but, but it seems to fade in some ways from a lot of the, the band members interviews and discussions. Um, but of course is there in the music as, as well. Well, I am extremely reluctant to make any judgment. I know that the pressure on them is enormous. They know that what they say is repeated and heard and, has a response and they get the feedback from it. So I expect over the years they become very circumspect and very careful sure. about what they put out. And I respect that. I, I understand why and uh, I, I wish I knew a little bit better how, but mm. I, I can see how that's where they're coming from and I have a problem with it. Yeah, yeah. I think there's actually a... Um, I heard John John Barlow speak one time about I think in 1972, he and Hunter made an agreement to refrain from anything that could become dogma in their lyrics. You know, they they said, "Well, people are really looking to what we say and and are really holding on to it. We need to we need to be careful about this." And they they would know about that. I know that Barlow spent some time with Timothy Leary towards the end of his life. Hmm. And uh, we ran into him occasionally also, and I, I had his books, and I. Heard his lectures and uh, definitely found them fascinating. But uh, uh, as, far, as far as he and Hunter 
that's that's very definitely part of it. It's uh, the spirit is in the music, and uh, if you put it there, it's it's like if you build it, they will come. That old slogan: uh, concentrate on the product because it's what blows the wind in the sails. Hmm. Well, Tom, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to speak with me today. It's been a pleasure. I, 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 I am delighted because I keep getting new and interesting questions. Uh, uh, people in this position usually get the same old questions over and over and over again, and I've been able to avoid that thanks to my question. <laughs> oh, well, good. I I, uh, I certainly put effort into that. I said, I, you know, I don't want to just ask him the same thing everybody else asks. <laughs> right. Well, I'm sure your listeners and your, uh, your, your fans will recognize it if you did, too, so I'm sure they appreciate your efforts. <laughs> well, thank you. You know, one question just out of curiosity. Do you know if any of the mime troupe um, shows that you and Phil and, and Steve did together were, were ever recorded? Yes, I've heard the recording. And uh, somewhere in my archives, I might have a copy. But I know that it has been recorded. Okay. All uh, right. Steve might be likelier to have copies because he's been a more diligent archivist that way. Uh, I'm diligent in keeping the stuff, but I actually have been sorting through my boxes the last couple of months. And it's like Christmas morning. I find stuff that I forgot I had. So <laughs> it, it was definitely recorded. Okay. All right. I'll, I will try and track, track some of it down. That would be – I might not be able to do it in time for this show, but it, it certainly it certainly would be fun to hear. Indeed it would. Uh, Phil did a, a jubilantly eruptive prepared piano piece for me. And I, I did an improvisation uh, on prepared piano with two pre-recorded prepared piano tracks. That, uh, oh my! <laughs> yeah, way out in space. Wow, wow. Well, Tom Constantin, thank you so much for being our guest today on Unassimilated Sounds. I hope to catch you out on the road with seeing Jazz's dad and invite everyone to go see these shows. It's going to be a good run of shows. We're going to close with another tune from you doing. Curtis Mayfield's People Get Ready, followed by Ron Carter, A Song for You, and then one final number. Deadheads, you'll know it when you hear it.
So Thank you. 
Thank you very much. Thank you.